This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. CNIB does not make guarantees about the comprehensiveness or accuracy of the content. CNIB and the podcast participants assume no responsibility for how you use the information provided. If you require legal advice about a specific issue, contact a lawyer or community legal clinic. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Know Your Rights podcast. And I'm joined by Jason and Avesta today to talk about self-advocacy and what that really means. I mean, for all of us um, listening, watching this, this episode, this podcast, I think it's really an interesting topic to know what our rights are and how we can advocate for ourselves and to, to really take charge through education and implementation and execution of um, advocacy. And um, as some of you may know, um, I have a rare form of macular degeneration and I'm legally blind and have made it my mission and passion to help others live a purpose-driven life through self-advocacy implementation to live exactly how you want to emotionally and physically. So without further ado, um, I'd like to first introduce um, Jason um, to the to the episode. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So Jason, you are a, a lawyer, uh, a criminal lawyer with um, the, the Crown, um, and you also have um, some vision loss as well. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit about your experience, um, you know, of the type of vision loss you have and, um, you know, how you have gotten around that to be, um, you know, working as a, as a lawyer? So yes, so I'm 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 totally blind, and um, I'm a federal crown counsel with the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. And what I do is I am a federal prosecutor, and I prosecute criminal cases, um, namely cases involving uh, narcotics, drugs, the sale of narcotics, trafficking in narcotics, possession of firearms, um, proceeds of crime, etc. Um, I'm in court a lot. I do a lot of trial work, a lot of motions. Uh, when I'm not in court, I'm basically preparing to go to court. And I'm totally blind. And I've been doing this job for about 17 years now. I'm coming immediately out of law school. And uh, so it, it's been a challenge for sure, uh, especially um, b- um, being um, a person, person living with vision loss. But I, I think it comes down to what the theme of our topic is today, and that's, and that's self-advocacy. I think that when you're having a disability, in particular sight loss, in a field that typically has not been very accommodating for people, people with disabilities uh, and has been kind of, in the past, a closed kind of field and um, not and one resistant to change, you, one does have to be kind of out there for themselves and letting everyone know that they can do the job and showing them how and also advocating for your accommodations. For example, with my job, I have um, a paralegal who's specifically dedicated to um, assisting me. For example, uh, I, we deal with a lot of police officers notes and they're typically handwritten, which obviously don't lend themselves well to being scanned or being read. So the person would be would basically type them out for me, would transcribe them for me. Um, 
we're organizing very large uh, files and and very large um, um, pieces of evidence and and whatnot. So uh, having someone help me streamline that is definitely an assistance. In terms of going to court, it can be a very visual process. So I typically have uh, I bring typically a, a more uh, a more junior uh, lawyer with me or perhaps a student. Uh, that I think is beneficial for both is that I, I get the assistance I need and they, they get the experience. So there's workarounds, but, is, but the legal profession has been particularly a, a very closed field resistant to change. That is, is obviously changing now, but it's taken some time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I want to circle back to that in just a moment. But um, I want to also introduce uh, Avesta to the to the episode and welcome her. So thank you so much for joining us. And Avesta, you are um, have just finished uh, law school. Is that correct? Yes, I just graduated in April from Osgoode Hall Law School. And I just finished my license examinations with the Ontario Bar. Wonderful. Congratulations. I, I know that's really exciting. Um, my sister is uh, just actually finished her summer placement at uh, a firm uh, as well. So I know how exciting that whole process is. And um, I believe you, you're starting an articling um, position at one of the, the larger firms in Toronto here. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. Um, it'll be at Borden Latner Gervais uh, LLP. And uh, yeah, so I'm very excited for that. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I know how exciting that is. So congratulations. And, you know, I think um, something that I'd like to know a little bit more about is I understand that you also um, have uh, a visual difference. Um, would you mind telling our viewers a little bit about that and then just briefly about how that has impacted um, your journey through law school. And I want to dive into that a little bit deeper as well. And one thing I do want to leave um, our viewers and listeners as a cliffhanger is, I understand that you've also written uh, a book. Um, so if you could just give us a very quick um, uh, synopsis of how that came to be, I'd be really interested. And once again, we'll dive into that um, a little later on in the episode. Uh, great. Um, so my name is Vesta and I'm diagnosed at the age of eight years old with a cone rod dystrophy. Um, so what that means is I have 20 over uh, 350 vision. Um, see, like that doesn't, uh, with the diagnosis, it, it, to me, it's just a number. It doesn't explain very much. So um, it, it's not too helpful in that sense. Um, you know, presenting a diagnosis when you go around. But essentially, um, what that means is uh, that I have trouble seeing distance and it, things can be pretty fuzzy and small and uh, smaller things are tougher to see. And uh, that's definitely challenged me uh, throughout my education and uh, the couple different jobs I've had. Um, it's made me become more adaptable and more resilient and uh, definitely uh, more proactive um, throughout my life. And it was a lot of trial and error. Um, Why well, I particularly like this podcast about self-advocacy because I find that uh, working with visual impairment, um, a lot of it does start with knowing yourself and what you need. And so for me, a lot of my journey was figuring out my own vision and how I can best, like what do I need to be accommodated and be able to do um, my schooling and my work. Um, and uh, I guess uh, 
Um, my undergraduate was uh, in international development and globalization, and my minor was in philosophy. Um, that was at the University of Ottawa that I finished in 2017, and that's when the idea for my uh, book came about. I was uh, studying a lot of philosophers, and they had a lot of uh, different ideas about identity, um, but never really in the sense of people who are differently abled, um, but uh, a lot of uh, gender philosophy and uh, uh, race philosophy. So I, I thought, wouldn't this be an interesting dynamic to reevaluate what exactly it means um, to be differently abled and what exactly it, it is to be called disabled? Um, and that's where my idea for my book, Diffability, the Liberation of Potential, started. Um, and so that's more of like a, a nonfiction sort of piece where I take a, a lot of philosophical and linguistic uh, theories and trying to unpack where this uh, ideology that kind of has become a little bit of an uphill battle, um, I think if you're differently abled, um, to be able to present yourself, um, to show that you are able to do something even though you do it a little bit differently. Um, especially, uh, like was previously said, um, uh, I'm just uh, hopping into my legal career here, um, particularly uh, all in the private sector. And those are traditionally two areas that have been a little bit more restricted <laughs> for um, people who are differently abled. So uh, I, I really wanna be able to uh, join and kind of pierce it a little bit so that you know the people who come after me have a easier time and there's more understanding and more collaboration. Um, both in the private sector and the legal field and other uh, fields of employment as well. So that's my two cents. I'm so excited about this episode because I think both of you really embody, um, you know, why we're doing this, um, this series on knowing your rights. And one topic that has come up, um, or not so much a topic, but a point that has come up in a lot of the other episodes is this is so important for other people with visible and invisible difference to know that you're not alone. There's other people who are, are paving the way for change for, for all of us, for you know future generations, and to not accept intolerance um, and for everyone to be as accepting and accommodating as possible because we all deserve a personalized plan of attack, whether that that's school, whether it's um, for applying for a job, we're all different and we all succeed in different ways. And if we can figure out the best way, and Avessa, you said that beautifully, of finding the right tools so that you have the, the best resources to, to be as successful at whatever you choose to do um, in your, your job, your life, your relationships, it, it doesn't matter. Finding that is so important. So uh, I'm really, really excited to hear about that. I'm really interested to know about um, your book as well. But Jay, Jason, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, at this point, and probably our viewers and listeners are wondering, you know, how do we kind of know what our rights are, um, you know, in Canada, in Ontario? Does it vary in province to province? I'd love some insight on that from you. It does vary from province to province. What one's rights are in Ontario may differ from British Columbia. So how to, how to know, you know, is there a one-stop shop other than maybe the Know Your Rights project itself? I, I'm not sure that there is. Uh, I mean, obviously you can, you can do your classic Google search, but I can't say unless you 
go to like a, a disability law clinic or or go to a resource like what we're providing. There probably isn't a one-stop shop for all these things. But at the brief overview, I can tell you that, that federally there are a few, few things. There's obviously uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is um, federal law, which is basically a charter that has all of the rights of all individual Canadians in try, and that includes you know, the right to be free from the state, the right to be free from uh, illegal search and seizure and uh, illegal detention and whatnot, all your classic legal rights of, of someone who's an accused person that I would deal with in my job. But it also includes um, a clause on, on equality, Section 15, that uh, it, it, it specifies certain enumerated analogous groups, disability being one, uh, of which um, our equality is guaranteed under the Charter, in which we can actually potentially bring legal action against a government for if they're not treating us, uh, quote-unquote, equally. So that, that's on a macro level and a, on a federal level. And of course, there's the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which deals with federal employers such as banks, chartered banks and, and federal government departments, um, which would deal with those people that work in those jobs, their human rights issues. Um, but on the, on the provincial level, there each province has its own human rights commission, including Ontario, and their own human rights code, which, which may differ slightly. So in Ontario, on a provincial level, we have, of course, the, the Ontario Human Rights Code, which governs individual human rights, say, um, at school or in the workplace or employment, um, etc. And then, we, of course, we have um, the AODA, um, which has been enforced now since 2005. And that covers a, a broad spectrum of, of kind of all life in Ontario from businesses to government. Um, that's that's a more of a societal systemic level, whereas I think the Human Rights Commission is more of an individual level. So that's you know, a broad brush of what we have available in terms of human rights law in Ontario. But it is, I don't know of any one-stop shop other than the human or the uh, Know Your Rights Project where you could kind of get a sense of that all in one place. How do we necessarily know what our accommodation should be. I mean, for me, I know that I need um, large fonts. Um, things are becoming less and less paperless. So I really rely on um, digital formats. And um, I love Apple technology because of their accessible features and their, their font enlargement and contrast and things like that. But what if, how do we kind of figure out what the right accommodations for us are? Um, and I know that's a pretty uh, unique um, question. And then from that, so the second fold of this would be, how do we start asking for those accommodations, whether it be at school, at work, or in public services? So if I could just do a quick plug just from our last, leftover from our last question, I should have mentioned um, ARCH, which is uh, a disability law clinic. I happen to board of directors of. They've got some great online resources in terms of fact sheets and uh, um, kind of how, how to go about doing a human rights complaint and whatnot. And they're a free legal clinic where they can, everyone's entitled to, I believe, a, at least a half an hour of free consultation. They, so that's, that's also a great place to start in terms of their resources online and their staff lawyers. If you guys missed that, um, we'll we'll share that link um, in the description for ARC. Um, so uh, you'll be able to access that in the description or somewhere surrounding this uh, this piece of information. So sorry, go ahead, Jason. Sorry, so I just want to get that plug in. Uh, I think it's important that people, that's another great resource for people to start that has 
fiction that you would need. And it's done in, in a very readable way. It's not done in like legalese. It's done in like plain language, which is also very important for even for lawyers. I, it's obviously, you can say something in, you know, four words instead of 40 words, it's obviously going to be better and, and, and clearer. Um, in terms of knowing one's accommodation, it's very individual, as, as both of you have said. Somebody with partial vision will have different needs than somebody with no vision, for example. So you've re it's really a lot of trial and error on the individual's part to see what works for them. And then once they know what that is, to advocate for it. Uh, so for example, for me, uh, I, we've mentioned obviously uh, the cell phone. I think that the Apple products are tremendous in terms of the voiceover mode and whatnot. I've recently been struggling with learning Microsoft Teams for a course I'm taking at work. I'm with using it on the computer. But um, after downloading it onto my phone, my iPhone, it's actually a lot more accessible, a lot easier to figure out. Not perfect, but comparatively speaking, better than on the desktop. Great. So the phones have really, you know, and I have I have a work iPhone and I have a personal iPhone, and the phones have really brought us a long way in the last couple of years. But um, it's very individual. For example, for me that has no vision, um, a large print program doesn't work for me. So I need to have um, a program with uh, speech access. I need to have uh, something where I can scan documents um, to get them in, in speech. Um, I, I would need something that accommodates my, I'm not really a Braille user, but if I was, I, I might need a Braille display, for example. So I think it's, 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 the, it's the person has to try to see what they can put in their toolkit. And the individual has to do some trial and error to see what works. And then once we know what works in a school setting or a work setting, we have to say, you know, I've done my homework. Here's my needs. Here's why I need them. And here's why you have to provide it for me. So I think it, we have to, it's first on us to figure out what works for us and, it, and that there's not a one size fits all solution. It's very individual. And then once we kind of experiment with our, our own situation, then we have to advocate those needs to our employer, school, whatever, to make sure that we're properly accommodated. Yeah, I, I think that totally um, makes sense to me. I know that I've gone through that process myself. But, you know, for somebody who is, you know, maybe was recently diagnosed or has yet to really um, hone in on the resources that they need or is just kind of almost there, um, you know, whether it be in an educational setting or a, an employment setting, I think packaging, you mentioned kind of saying, here's what I need and why I need it. Um, I think maybe can be a little daunting um, for some people, especially starting a new job or starting, um, you know, at a at a school where they don't know people. I know that it, it it's challenging. I've come across it myself of being unsure as to how to properly um, request those accommodations. Now, Vesta, I know that you've just um, you're just starting an articling job and finished school. Um, how did you go about, um, you know, putting together that packet of um, requests for the accommodations that you need to succeed? Right. Um, so I completely agree that it's definitely an individual um, package, and you have to know what works best for yourself. Um, but I, I do want to. I do want to say it doesn't necessarily have to be an isolated process to know that. Um, I know the CNIB has a lot of different um, programs where you can come together and play with technology with um, other people in the community. And growing up, 
uh, one of the big milestones um, for me was um, for for most of my um, like uh, beginning education after I was diagnosed, um, I sort of tried to uh, hide the fact that I was visually impaired. Um, and so I isolated myself from uh, a lot of other people that uh, may have had similar experiences to me. Um, and that was a little bit of a detriment to myself because they didn't really know what accommodations were out there and how it could help me. Um, so uh, going to those things and um, my first time uh, going to one of them was at the, the Lake Joe camp. So I think if you're definitely younger, a, a high schooler, that's something you want to consider because you learn a lot and you learn from others. Um, and uh, that's actually a, a philosophy that I've written in my book too, that through others, you can actually learn a lot more about yourself as an individual. So I definitely think that um, though it's an individualized package and you have to know the accommodations that work best for you. It's not an isolated process. You can definitely do it while working with others. And so the CNIB is the best place to start for that, especially for youth um, and also older people as well. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there so that that part isn't as daunting. Um, but um, also uh, don't, don't feel like you have to get the accommodations that are assumed like upon you. So I do have some vision. And um, if somebody just uh, saw me, they'd probably think that I'd be able to read large print just on how I behave and how much I can see. But actually, um, I prefer the audio because um, like it's just too much text and it'll uh, give me a headache. So like those kind of things you have to figure out for yourself and sort of don't feel like you have to be put in this box of what accommodations, you know, people think you should be having. So again, um, definitely be, uh, willing to experiment in different accommodations and see what works best for you. Um, and that said, uh, once you kind of know what works best for you and you're, you've got your little package going, I think you definitely want to be able to present it in a way that it's almost empowering, I would say. Like, oh, um, these things that, you know, um, I might have challenges, but here's a way I can overcome it. So um, to somebody who hears it, it kind of seems like an empowering and sort of like more like a relaxing sort of message to them that, oh, like I know a way that I can help this person and, and they can be the best that they can be at um, my work or my institution instead of like saying, well, I'm going to have challenges with all these things, but I have no idea how to help, um, what to do to accommodate myself. Please help me. That I feel like would be a little bit more daunting. So. I would say that the package to a lot of people may be daunting for you to present, but maybe if you think about the mindset that it's actually easing the person who hears it, um, that might be a little bit easier to, to kind of push you to bring it forward. And uh, I would say that also once you do have your package going, um, like d don't be like definitely stand by it. But if there's something that the that is presented to you that it's almost the same thing, let's say, but comes under a different name, but does the exact same thing, um, try to be a, a, like a, a little bit like just like with your peers and how you're able to try different things and see what works for you. If this is something that you know could possibly work for you, try it. And if it doesn't work out, then go back to your original package. But if it if, if it if it does, then you know be a little bit flexible if you can, but not to the point where it's like a completely different thing that's being presented to you and you know that's not gonna work based off experience. So you gotta have your sort of judgment calls and and be able to, again, uh, 
knowing your rights is a lot about knowing yourself. So, so know what works for you and where you can kind of be flexible and where you can't. I 100% agree with that. And I'm going to do something that I haven't done on this um, series yet, because I think it ties in exactly to what um, both Jason and Vesta have been talking about here, is as some of you may know, I'm um, currently in the process of a human rights dispute. And that came from me requesting accommodations to write an examination, a professional examination, and being denied and offered accommodations that did not fit my needs whatsoever. And um, it, I, it was a really challenging um, letter to receive, or email, I guess at this point, um, to say that we're not going to give you what you've always been accommodated with in the past and what has proven to be a successful accommodation packet for you. Um, we're going to give you um, what other people, and these are their words, other blind people um, have used and been successful with. And given your, um, your disability, um, you're going to have to use those as well. Otherwise, you know, um, you're, you're on your own here. And I, I, I think the reality is a lot of us have experienced one form of that or another. And, and I've been, um, I don't want to say guilty of this, but I've succumbed to that pressure of giving in, of saying, okay, I'll try it your way and not being successful and feeling um, that I was denied um, a, a fair shot at success. Um, so I have stood up against that and um, am fighting for a systematic or a systemic change um, within that institution and hoping that that will have residual effects um, amongst a, a larger scope. But um, I wanted to share that because I, I wanted to really um, humanize this conversation um, for everybody um, listening, watching, participating, that it's it's okay to say no um, if you understand that your 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 chances at success or your rights um, as somebody with difference and uh, as an individual we're all different um, aren't being fulfilled and it's it's really hard to advocate for yourself because um, especially in a large institution um, how do you go about making change or creating change for yourself to start with. And I love the, the know yourself aspect. You really need to, to know yourself to, to know what your, your rights are. Um, and I guess that comes into, um, you know, a, a large uh, topic that we tend to bring up almost on every episode of what are reasonable accommodations. And I know that we're going to bring up the duty to accommodate and undo hardship. Um, so Jay, Jason, would you mind just kind of giving our viewers a brief definition of what undue hardship is and duty to accommodate? So sure, I'll give you a kind of a 30,000 foot view. So this is all spelled out in the Ontario Human Rights Code for those of us who are in Ontario. I'm sure each province has their own version of it. So basically what it says is that every entity in Ontario, be that an employer, a school, a store, any sort of public entity that's regulated through the laws of Ontario, uh, 
has a duty to accommodate anybody with a disability, whether that be someone who's a customer, a student, an employee, etc. And so they have to provide what's called reasonable accommodation um, to the point of undue hardship. Under hardship is, is, a, is a legal term, but it's not precisely defined. It basically means that the entity has to, or the business or whatever has to accommodate that person to the point of basically almost the, they'd have to show that to accommodate this person basically is going to almost like bankrupt the company. Like it's going to be so much of a drain on resources that the, the company wouldn't survive or there'd be a, a risk to health and safety of other people in the in the in the company or something it's it's a very high hurdle basically it has to be something that would it would interfere substantially with their business to do the accommodation and that's very hard to show especially if you're in government or in a say a post-secondary institution so so there is this legal duty to accommodate to the point of basically having your business shut down almost undue hardship so it's a high it's a very broad duty to accommodate and and to show undue hardship is a pretty high bar which gives us as with disabilities a lot of runway and leeway to advocate for our own individual needs and not accept something that's being imposed on us or kind of shoved down our throat because it's because it's convenient for them no no it has to be that we have it has to work for us and they have to do it unless it's going to basically cripple their business so that gives us a lot of leeway and a lot of room to to move in 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 terms of what our, our accommodations and needs are yeah, no, I, I think it's it's really um, important to keep reinforcing um, the the importance of really understanding um, from you know uh, breaking it down to a point where everybody can understand. Um, you know, undue hardship has been reiterated on this um, series so many times, and hearing the the definition just I, I don't know it just really kind of instills um, the leverage we have to make sure that we are accommodated um, and that the duty to accommodate um, people with difference to be as successful as possible is crucial. And it's really being um, put forward that it's really important. And I mean, I know that this episode is definitely running long um, and there's a ton of topics I would love to cover um, with you guys. So um, I guess we can discuss that another time. But I wanted to kind of um, dig into a little bit about, um, you know, Jason, how you kind of figured out um, what were the right accommodations um, for you with somebody with with no sight to go through law school to you know know that you needed a paralegal um, to to help you succeed in your career and what what was the kind of journey in requesting those accommodations and advocating for yourself? So so to Vesta's point, it wasn't done in isolation. I think that we always work best when we work with others. So, but it was a lot of trial and error. So, for example, I used to have, I had some limited vision um, before and as I was in law school that I wound up losing um, in my first couple of years of practice. So there even had to be some accommodations even along the way as I went along. But generally what I would do is, um, I've actually been pretty lucky. Um, so I went to law school at U of T and they knew I was blind. It was, you know, obviously it was very clear in my application and I was part of my personal statement and I certainly didn't have any issue in disclosing it. 
Um, so they, they knew I was going to have some accommodation issues. So they actually, when I started going to school there, the staff sat me down and said, what accommodations, what do you need, basically? So it was actually pretty easy. I didn't have to really force my way in. They kind of offered it to me. So, and I thought, well, okay, and the business back in, you know, 1998, and there still was an actual library at that time, which is basically now just a bunch of uh, computer terminals. But at the time, there still were the classic, you know, stacks of books. So I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot of research projects here, and it's a very, very daunting library. I'm going to need um, someone to help me do my elite research in the library. And so, done. Uh, and I knew from undergrad I needed um, a, a PC with a speech program called JAWS for Windows. Done. I also knew I needed uh, some way to, to get printed documents, uh, or sorry, documents um, in on paper into electronic format. So I was able to ask for a scanner. So it was it was kind of that process where we, we they talked about, they asked me what I needed, and I told them, and I explained why I needed it and how it would help me. And I didn't really get any pushback. So I was very lucky in that sense. I guess being my disability is very obvious. I didn't have to sell people on me being disabled, where some folks that maybe have some partial vision, it looks like they can see better than they can, may have more of a hurdle, whereas with me, it was pretty obvious. So it, I didn't have the same, I didn't have to prove my disability. It was very obvious. So I just had to basically articulate as to what my accommodations were. And once I finished law school um, and had no vision and started working, um, I, so I worked at my current job as a summer student for two summers where I didn't have a full-time assistant. And it became very clear that I was going to need one because of the level of just printed material to wade through. And then when you're doing work, you're doing criminal law and you're doing docket courts, for example, and there's documents coming at you all the time that, that are new. Uh, a person just got arrested and they're being processed and being brought to the court to have their bail hearing. So you don't you don't have time to get those documents transcribed in alternative format. They're coming at you in real time. And the only real accommodation is to have someone there with you to have to, to wade through them. And that's kind of where we figured out, actually, I would need, a, I would need an assistant um, to help me doing things like docket court, where you've got all these written documents on the fly, where you're making decisions on them and dealing with, with lawyers. So... As I started my job, it became very clear that it would be, there were some accommodation issues and I would need to, to resolve them. And then, so I worked with my HR people and my managers to come up with a solution. And that was to have a, a full-time paralegal dedicated to me and my accommodations. And when I go to court, um, especially now as I'm, I'm a more senior lawyer, I, I'm part of the training program, whereas I bring a student or a young lawyer with me to, and they, they can help me with making sure that I, I can read things that are, you know, let's say that the other side, you know, drops 10 cases on us five minutes before court, I can at least deal with them because I've got someone there with me where it would be really hard if I, if I didn't. So I'm, I'm lucky that I work for an, an employer that's very into accommodation and, and really gives me what I need. But I know not everyone's that fortunate. But really for me, it was a lot of trial and error and I would try things that are hard to do and then I would find a workaround. It's, it's all about really finding workarounds. There's always more than one way to do things. It's just finding that way to do it. That's, uh, that's something I've, uh, I really live by um, in my professional capacity, capacity um, you know, as a partner in a, a business uh, kind of creation company is always 
multiple ways to get to point A to B. And just because a straight line is the fastest doesn't mean it's the most effective, but if you can still get there, um, your journey along the way uh, may yield uh, amazing results that you know, taking the straight and narrow path might not have uh, provided. So I think that's a really key um, takeaway. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I know that it really helps kind of bring this into um, a really real scope um, for our viewers and listeners here. And just one quick follow-up question with that, you know, as technology evolves, um, you mentioned that you have a, a work iPhone um, as well as a personal one. What's the kind of request um, process you know, if something comes along that's going to make your your job easier for you to do, um, is it a, a formal application that you have to submit um, or is it just reaching out to, um, you know, your HR uh, department and saying, hey, I would really need this uh, to help me do X? Well, what's that process like? That'll depend on where you work. For me, for the federal government, it's pretty easy. We have a, a centralized accommodation um, office in Ottawa, and we go directly through them, and they'll work with us to find the proper accommodation. And then basically, from that point, we get sign-off from our manager, which for me is no problem. I guess I'm lucky in that, again, I've been at my job for so long now that I think I'm trusted, so that if I say something, I need something, it's not really questioned. Um, but that's harder for someone who's just starting out some of say in an investor's situation where she's starting articling and she's not a known commodity there it may be a little bit more difficult because you got to get known for me now i've been doing this so long that it's kind of like if i say i need it you know i pretty much get it unless again and it's pretty hard for a federal government department to claim undue hardship we can't get you this laptop because it might Bring the department down. I mean, it's pretty hard to make that claim if you're in government. Uh, maybe different if you're in more of a small business situation, but when you're working in, in governments and large corporations, it's pretty hard to say getting you this computer is going to bankrupt us. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that. So, so I, so I, my process is, is sort of formal in the way that I have, to, I have to go through the accommodation folks in Ottawa, but then I have to get sign off from my manager, which is all pretty much, um, I don't want to say it's academic, but it's fairly easy to do. And I don't have to really go through too many hurdles to do it. But, uh, you know, that, that process in itself has evolved over the last 17 years. It wasn't always that way. It, it used to be more red tape. And it's, fortunately, the red tape has been, has been cut down for me personally. For people, it's, it's not that easy. And they have to really prove themselves. They have to prove, A, they have a disability, and B, it's one that has to be accommodated and C, why this expense um, should be uh, undertaken to accommodate them. And that can be much, much more challenging. So it, can, it gets into more, here's the tools I need to do my job and here's why. And so I think it, uh, for me, it's probably a little bit, I don't want to say it's ever easy, but easier than most have it. Yeah, it's it's fantastic that, you know, you're so well accommodated without pushback. Um, and I think my, my real point of the, the question um, is to show people that, you know, things change and we're in such a, uh, a high pace of change, um, especially with the current situation. Um, you know, uh, before we signed on, um, Jason and I were talking about, you know, using Zoom uh, as just almost like a, a reflex of conversation at this point where, you know, six, 12 months ago, um, it, it wasn't really something that people would have been comfortable with. So, I mean, my point here is 
don't be afraid to ask, but make sure that it, it works for you um, first. These, these tools, I mean, this seems to be the theme is to really to, to try things out. Um, there's no harm in trying. I know that there are um, financial resources and aid that can um, provide you with financial resources um, to test things. CNIB is a great um, resource to, to start to learn about um, accessible technologies and resources. Um, there's tons of groups. Um, Jason, it was Arch, you said, was uh, the, um, the company that you're on the board for? Disability Law Center. It's a clinic um, that's funded primarily through Legal Aid Ontario and some other sources that is a disability law clinic. And so they do exclusively, they do test case litigation, but they'll do individual assessments. Um, and they may take on your case, they may refer you some somewhere else, but they'll at least, it's a great starting point. They've got some great online resources as well in terms of fact sheets and how-tos and legislation. So it's, it's a great complement for the CNIB Know Your Rights program. We actually did a joint uh, workshop back uh, about a year ago now, uh, Arch and CNIB, where we actually put on a workshop for lawyers who want to have uh, visually impaired and, and uh, clients with sight loss and how they would accommodate them. And, and it was actually very productive. That's awesome. I think it's a great resource. That I certainly didn't know about that, so I'll be checking that out um, after this conversation. Um, oh, and it looks like we lost Avesta, but I think she's joining back in now. So just give us one here while we re, uh, re-sync on the technology front. And um, as soon as Avesta um, kind of rejoins the call, um, I, I'd really um, like her to share some uh, insight about the book um, that she's written um, I think the the topic itself is is so empowering, and the 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 pivots in in terminology um, are really key to understanding and reframing uh, how we we consider um, difference, whether it be physical, um, emotional, invisible, visible. All of those things um, really are are important to consider. And you know, as somebody who has um, a, an invisible, visible difference. Um, and that complicated way to say is, as Avesta's um, mentioned in this episode, is most people don't um, initially view me as somebody with um, vision loss. And there's, there's always a hurdle um, or that kind of um, second where people have to calibrate in their mind that, oh, he can't see, or I forgot he might not be able to read the menu at this restaurant, whatever it may be. I've been on client lunches. I've taken out my phone and used it as a magnifying glass and, uh, you know, had to explain that. And it's just, I mean, not that it was an issue, but there are these little tiny things um, that, uh, you know, always need to be uh, considered. So, I think with that said, um, you know, Jason, is there any advice that you could give our listeners, our viewers in terms of advocating for themselves or any inspiration um, to kind of send people off with? Well, I think and, and advocacy isn't necessarily actually going and, and, and you know, arguing uh, in front of a formal tribunal. It could just be education. Uh, what we're doing right now is advocacy. It's, it's self-empowerment. 
So I think what people can do is really educate themselves to what their rights are. And they can do that by watching this podcast, going to the CNIB website, going to the Arch website, talking to people. Um, and so kind of experimenting for themselves what accommodation they need. And then um, a lot of it's about the education. And I think we've actually got a real opportunity here right now. I think that the, 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 the one positive thing that's happened over the last, say, six months with the pandemic is I think it's made the world in some ways less accessible, in some ways more accessible. And I say this because working from home now is the norm. And I think it's going to be here to stay. I think that you know, my office, you know, six months ago, being that we're litigators, working from home was was almost unheard of. You can't do it. You got to be in court every day. You have to be in the office. You need, to be, you know, and there are things you have to be in the office for. That's true. But there's a lot of things that you don't. Like a lot of courts now are being run remotely through Zoom or through other platforms. Um, I've set up my my summer office on my balcony in my condo. So, I mean, you know, and there's actually been some stats that people are actually working longer days now, working from home, because you're not commuting. You're not going out for lunch for, you know, an hour and a half. You're not, and you're spending less money every day because you're not blowing money on $20 lunches. So in some ways it's become more accommodating that someone doesn't have to worry about getting to an office or getting home or getting on transportation or, or and much of what's happening is being done electronically on formats that are more or less accessible like zoom so i think that the pandemic has actually created an opportunity although it's there's some challenges with it of course in terms of getting around and social distancing there are some advantages in that working from home i think is now the norm and, and working from the office will be the exception so i think that creates more opportunity for people with disabilities that perhaps would have had challenges getting in and getting around to an office or commuting or accessing transportation can work from home on you know more or less accessible platforms like Zoom, which I find for the most part very accessible. So there's there's opportunities there too. Yeah, I I, I think it's um, it, yeah it's really well said, and it feels like everybody's trying to accommodate um, in one way, shape, or form um, these days. Whether it's accommodating a meeting, um, you know, because they have to drop their or you know watch their kids from x y and z time um but it really i think is paving the way to um to change um in terms of you know getting people what they need to succeed whether it's with any type of difference um so to say or not and i think it's a really exciting time for to advocate for change, to be able to, to really understand what we need as individuals, generally speaking, um, to, to succeed and, and live a life that has meaning, that, that gives us joy and purpose in our day-to-day -day lives. Jason, I really wanted to thank you um, so much for the time to speak with me uh, this morning and to be part of this series, the information and, and motivation um, that you've given myself and I'm sure other people um, to, to advocate and to succeed and to, to make it a priority um, to, to get what you need to be, to be successful. Um, and it really goes a long way. So thank you so much, um, for joining. Um, I'll be sure to add the, um, the arch, uh, information in the description or comments or wherever it may live, um, 
in perpetuity on the internet um, so that people can access that information. I know I'll be sure to check it out after this call. And guys, um, if you need, uh, you know, have any questions, comments, anything about this episode or human rights, you can always reach out to the CNIB um, as they would be more than happy to um, help point you in the direction you need. Okay, so we're actually back on a different day. We had some uh, technical difficulties getting Avesta uh, joined for the rest of the conversation. So um, please ignore any continuity issues. But I'm back here and to kind of segue back into the conversation, you know, we were talking about terminology and how that makes such a, a big difference. And Avesta, you've written a book called Diffability. And I think that's such an interesting uh, choice of words there. So would you mind sharing with our listeners and viewers a little bit about the book, what drew you to it? And I'm really interested in how you kind of coined that term, if you will. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the book um, sort of began when I was inspired um, by sort of going into the roots of the ideology behind disability, because at least from my experience in life, uh, it always felt that uh, people always took it as a given that uh, you lost some sort of ability or um, some sort of innate part of that you should have had. And so it, it was more about okay, so how can we sort of accommodate and start a discussion about uh, com like compensating for that part or accommodating that part um, that you didn't, that you've lost. And so I found that a very interesting uh, discrepancy because I didn't hear that much discussion about where that original idea that um, we have lost or we don't have something that is quote unquote normal or that we should have had sort of became. And that's when uh, throughout my first degree, I studied a lot of philosophy and there's a lot of philosophers who sort of talked about different um, relations between whether it was gender st studies or uh, race studies between uh, the differences that we feel towards one another. And so they kind of inspired me to think about disability a different way too, like where did this idea come from and how accurate is it? And I feel that it's for a lot of the prejudice or stigma or hard times that somebody uh, who identifies as having a disability um, faces usually comes from this idea that um, we've lost something or we can't do something. And that becomes internalized by the community and then becomes then internalized by the person um, and so it makes it a really hard upward battle to try to build yourself back up to that point of confidence. So Diffability, the book is about trying to reformulate that ideology and trying to bring back a different perspective as to what identifies us and what ability really means. Um, because it's not that we can't do something and so we do it differently and sort of bring back appreciation for diversity. Um, both to the community and to the individual. And I think that um, in my personal opinion that once you start sort of chipping away at that traditional ideology and bring an, a different way of thinking about it, it helps alleviate a lot of the structural and social stress um, for people who identify as being disabled, <laughs> if you will, and sort of helps them bring out their potential 
a little bit easier. I really love that. I think um, it's something that, I mean, you've really nailed it um, in terms of, uh, you know, differentiating, um, you know, disability as something to regain, to get back to, you know, a status quo, if you will. And I mean, uh, a term that I use uh, here very intentionally a lot to describe um, individuals is not you know, people with disabilities, but with visible and invisible difference. So, I mean, that was something that I really, um, you know, even when we were doing this a few weeks ago, was excited to, to hear kind of your description about this. And, you know, how did you kind of get the idea to write a book about this? You know, being a student, a philosophy student, and now an articling law student, where did this kind of concept of a, a book come from? Um, I think I think a book uh, holds a special place <laughs> to me for a lot of different reasons. I think first of all, it's something that you can kind of see the beginning structural point of it and have like a final product of of sort of what your idea became. And it's a book is a very interesting platform because it's sort of a collection of words that are first formulated in your mind and now it's on paper or an ebook version, if you will. But it's a very interesting way of communication. And it's it's almost uh, almost makes you feel a little vulnerable that like people are kind of reading into these, you know, ideas that you've worked and thought about for so long um, without like you being directly communicating so it's a very interesting platform and uh when i was younger i was i really loved books and i read a lot and i think it's a very very um very powerful way of collecting knowledge and sharing ideas because it preserves so well and it distributes so well and um you can come back to it and you can preserve it and i think you can like expand on it too so that's why i chose a book yeah, no, I, I, I really love it. And I think, you know, to tie into this whole topic of self-advocacy, what, a, what a, a unique way of advocating, um, not only for yourself, but um, I presume others, I haven't read the book, but, um, you know, based on our conversations, I, I'm, you know, I, I guess I would be uh, assuming that you did this also to inspire others to to advocate for themselves and to foster change within their communities. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, so very um, essential theme to the book that sort of ties in um, to self-advocacy or advocacy as a whole is this whole theme of uh, Hegel's, who's a, a very famous philosopher's concept of the other, and so what the other is, is that we know, uh, we can only know ourselves by knowing each other and knowing each other's differences. And then based on each other's differences, we know more about ourselves. So for example, uh, a woman wouldn't know she's a woman unless she saw a man, because then she would know that there's a difference. And then a man wouldn't, or an old person wouldn't know they're old until they saw a young person. And so it kind of brings back to the fact that self-advocacy is very important and it's not just for yourself, but you're actually doing the community a service too, because the more diversity and inclusion you have in a community, in a society, an institution, or wherever, or whatever uh, collective you have, the more um, the more uh, self appreciation uh, spreads. Not just for the person who's advocating, but for the people that are around you. More enlightenment. So, 
I think that's a really important thing to remember. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's so, so well said. And uh, I see your philosophy uh, coming out right there. I love the the quotation and the, the citation. So Avesta, do you have any kind of thoughts or comments that you'd like to leave our listeners and viewers with? Any kind of words of wisdom, inspiration, or anything that other people can do to help um, inspire and foster change within the community? Um, well, I think it's important to, first of all, know yourself. Don't afraid to be yourself and don't afraid to speak up for yourself. Um, know your rights, know your responsibilities, and uh, try to build those relationships and don't, don't uh, sway away from uh, fostering relationships or going after your goals because um, you feel that there may be challenges along the way. Don't count yourself out. And don't let people count you out for, for reasons um, that that can be accommodated and, and should be accommodated. Uh, I would say, when possible, <laughs> take the collaborative approach. But if if that doesn't work, then then uh, it's always important to to know your rights and bring them to the table because you are not um, just you're going to be doing it for yourself, but you're also influencing. Um, and inspiring those around you. So um, never be afraid to, to, to do that. Well said. And if um, any of our listeners or viewers want to um, get a copy of your book, where can they do that? Um, so there is a print version and an ebook version, and you can find them on Amazon or Google Play or Kindle or Nookbook. Um, or the recent press uh, publishing website or iTunes are just some of the places. It sounds like a major, all the major kind of platforms. We'll put some links in the description um, or um, have access to them. So if you are interested in reading and picking up a copy of Vesta's book, which I highly recommend, um, please check that out in the links below. Thank you. Thank you so much. Guys, till next time, we'll see you then. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.